0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: From Cited Media, this is Darts and Letters. I'm Gordon Caddick. As you might know, darts is made in Canada, but when I look at the stats, I know that about 40% of you are Americans and 40% of you are Canadians. Then there's that 20% of you others. You matter too, especially that one listener in Littgenstein. I see you, you are important, even though I have no idea where Liechtenstein is. But really what I wanna talk about right now is that 80%. We often tell Canadian stories, and we often tell American stories, but we try to make them relevant on both sides of the border. What we don't do, though, is we don't tell stories really about the relationship between the two countries. Because often those stories go the same kind of way. For Americans left of center, Canada holds this special place in their imaginary. Healthcare, peacekeeping, whatever. So anytime anything bad happens in the United States, you say you're fed up and you're on your way. This happened after George W. Bush became president, and it also happened after Donald Trump became president. In fact, that night, Canada's immigration website actually broke. When something like this happens, the discourse follows a pretty predictable cycle. You say you're coming because things look better here. We say it's not as good as you think it is, and then you never come because it was mostly bluster anyways. And the cycle repeats. Most recently, it was comedian Mark Marin on the Canada Land podcast with Jesse Brown. Marin told Brown that he's moving to Canada. I, I used to think like, well, it's kind of like America only without the, the fear, without the
2: anxiety permeating, you know, every part of uh, the environment. And as time went on, I grew to believe that was, it was boring. And then like something started to shift after Trump and after, you know, the chaos started here and I became older, it was like, as soon as I got to Canada, within 20 minutes of being off the plane, it was like, oh my
1: God, the cancer isn't here. Like I felt a tangible, physical relief. Now I like Mark Marin, but I actually think this is kind of embarrassing. It is a sort of naive left liberalism that's broken by the psychic wound of Trump's victory. Marin is just looking for a way out. Predictably, Brown tries to burst the bubble. He tells Mark Marin that Canada is not exactly like he thinks it is, and so on and so forth. Maybe one day Mark Marin will come. I hope he does. But the truth is, most people don't. Except there was a time when a lot of them did. I'm talking about the late 60s and the early 70s. This was a time when American Radicals were very interested in Canada because this was the Vietnam War and the draft was in effect. We are going to look at the story of the Draft Dodgers. This continues a series of episodes we're producing that looks at the radical histories of Canadian campuses. On this episode we ask, what exactly happened when the Draft Dodgers were the new kids at school? Did they find the Canada that they imagined? Darts and Letters producer Ren Banger leads our episode today. They'll have the story after the break. Hello, dear New Books Network listener. As you see, Darts and Letters is syndicated on your network. If you're finding us for the first time, consider subscribing to our main feed. We cover the politics of academia, science, expertise, and intellectual culture— If you like this conversation, you will surely like some of our other episodes. You can find them all at dartsandletters.ca. Subscribe today to never miss an episode. Okay, back to the show and on to Darts and Letters producer, Ren Bangert.
3: I want to start off the story on this side of the border in Canada. And I want to start with a quote. It's from a book called War is Here, the Vietnam War in Canadian Literature by Robert McGill. In the introduction to the book, McGill writes, a country does not need to be involved in combat for a war to have a role in shaping the national identity. Canadian writing about Vietnam illustrated how a nation might construct an identity for itself through its non-participation, its complicity, and its critique. That about sums up Bob Waller. In the 1960s, Bob wasn't participating in the Vietnam War, but he was forging his own identity through his opposition to it. And really, the whole country's. His story starts in Toronto. Bob was enrolling at Glendon College at York University.
2: I came to Glendon in uh, 1966 after finishing grade 13. I wanted a liberal arts college. I did not want the U of T, too big too bustling, and York, which was just being built at that time, was a hulk. It was coming out of the mud. Glendon was like a park, and it fulfilled my vision of what a liberal arts college was.
3: Bob was drawn to Glendon College for its unique commitment to the liberal arts, and he found the Glendon student paper, pro tem, almost immediately.
2: I wandered into the pro tem office during frosh week. Curious, and it was full of really fascinating people. I mean, ideas popping around, very outgoing, people were plugged into what was going on around the world. So I volunteered to be a sports photographer. After a while I said, I think I'd like to write a bit. So I did movie reviews, I did reporting. And by the end of the first year, I was a regular on the paper and I was an assistant editor. I stayed another year, I became managing editor, and then I became editor in 1968-69.
3: Bob got involved in the activism at Glendon. It was in the air, in Toronto and pretty much everywhere.
2: There was a revolution going on everywhere around the world. I mean, it it was a revolution of the baby boomers. Students were revolting everywhere because they wanted a greater say in their education. There were student rebellions in France and Germany. The States was going crazy. We had all sorts of riots in cities. In 1968, Bobby Kennedy was killed. Martin Luther King was killed. And all of this was happening with the backdrop of Vietnam. I can remember Vietnam reading about it as a kid back in 1960, when it was just getting going. By this time, you had maybe two, 300,000 American troops there. The thing about it is at that age of 18, it's very real because if I were an American, I would be trying to hang on to my school exemption and not get drafted. Aside from the fact that Canada refused to participate in it, whereas Australia did participate. I think that there was generally opposition throughout Canada towards this. The other thing about Glendon is, being bilingual, we were very cognizant of what was happening in Canada. The Quiet Revolution had started, I guess, in the late 50s, 59. And at this point, we were, separatism was really rearing its head. We'd had the bombing earlier in the decade. It was a big issue.
3: A militant group in Quebec orchestrated more than 200 bombings through the 60s and 70s. They killed six people. This was part of a period of Quebec nationalism people call the Quiet Revolution. Canadians were reassessing their own country on many levels. The Vietnam War also fed into this existential crisis. Which side were we on? Canadian anti-war protests stood in solidarity with their American counterparts particularly regarding the draft. Thousands of young men were leaving America to avoid being drafted, and many of them were trying to enter Canada as landed immigrants. They were known as draft dodgers, though you might say that's a bit pejorative. Many called themselves war resistors. There were also people who were called deserters, These were enlisted servicemen who left. Toronto had a strong core of anti-draft activists. The National Student Union for Peace Action had an anti-draft program. It was designed to inform and support Americans looking to avoid the draft by coming to Canada. When that group dissolved in the late 1960s, the Toronto Anti-Draft Program emerged as a local replacement. It was co-founded by an American draft resistor named Mark Satin. Satin wrote the Manual for Draft-Age Immigrants to Canada in 1968, and it became a key resource for many draft resistors. And the program took on all kinds of activism, including on-campus protests. The atmosphere over at Glendon College and at Pro Tem was electric.
2: We were serviced by the Canadian University Press, which is like Canadian press. So we had material coming in from all around the world, that we would run stories on Vietnam. We would run stories on demonstrations in, in the States. We knew about SDS and so on and so forth. So it was a rich environment. It was always percolating.
3: Formally, the Canadian government was not part of the war effort in Vietnam. And the country seemed inviting to draft dodgers who wanted to cross the border. But Bob and his colleagues discovered that it was a bit more complicated than
2: that. The Canadian government had a policy that basically said deserters, like draft dodgers, could come into Canada as landed immigrants if they had the points to do so. What was happening is that deserters were being turned back at the border by Canadian officials at the border.
3: Why were they sending away people who met the formal points requirements? The Canadian anti-war movement had a simple theory. It was because they were deserters. For one reason or another, the border guards didn't like them or because there was some hidden policy, whatever it was, deserters were being refused entry. The pro tem team set out to test their theory with some good old fashioned stunt journalism. They hatched a plan. They'd go undercover with American identities and get themselves across the US border where they supposedly lived. And then they'd see if they could make their way into Canada, where they were supposedly fleeing.
2: They'd got hold of the real documents of a real deserter, a guy named William John Heinzelman. Had his birth certificate, they had a reference from somebody in Canada, they had a job offer, he had education as well. He was going to have enough points to walk into Canada. So we wanted to test this.
3: Those five young men were all Glendon students. Not one of them was older than 20.
2: When you're 20, you're fearless. I'd been active, and and so had the other guys. You're fearless. That's why they like young men to go to war. They don't know any better. We were confident that we were going to be able to pull it off, and we also, I think doing it now with computers and with the way things have changed with American security, it would be a much tougher deal. I think they would have picked us up and thrown us into the clink on the other side. And we would have sat there for a week or so. But that wasn't the case then.
3: They carefully researched immigration regulations to be sure that William Heinzelman was qualified to cross the border. And on February 8th, 1969, they headed for the border.
2: We were going to cross at five border points, three along Niagara and two in Windsor, Detroit. So we drove down, we had our lawyers on one side and there were also American lawyers on the other side in case of complications. We were ready for anything. I was crossing at the Ambassador Bridge between Detroit and Windsor. In about two o'clock in the afternoon, we started out. Everybody was doing it simultaneously. Went across and presented myself to Canadian Customs and Immigration.
3: It was the moment of truth. Would the Canadian border guard let Bob back in? Or rather, would they let William John Heinzelman
2: in? What are you doing here? And I was cagey. I said, I'd like to come to Canada and I've got a job here and so on and so forth. And they went through everything I offered. And the guy said, well, you've got enough points. But what are you doing? Why are you leaving the States? And I confessed that I was a deserter. I didn't want to go back to Vietnam." And the guy went, okay, well, that could be a problem. And at that point, he got on the phone to what he called Central. I had no idea where it was. I didn't know whether he was talking to, I presumed it was Canadian, but who knew? He said, what do I do with this guy? And they said, send him back. Have a driver come and escort him back to the Americans. At that point, Again, we'd anticipated this, and we had a lot of Heinzelman identification. He had taken the Heinzelman birth certificate, but I had a bunch of other stuff. So I asked to go to the bathroom. I did, flushed everything I had down the toilet because I didn't want to complicate matters. When I came back, he gave me the Heinzelman uh, birth certificate, gave me to the driver. I was driven back across the line, met by two U.S. immigration agents. And they frisked me, they found a number of things. They found the Heinzelman birth certificate. They found a letter of introduction from Pro Tem because this was supposed to be also a a project by Pro Tem to write a story about this and my passport. So then they phoned and they, they phoned Central too. And I thought, there can only be one Central. How does this work? Two separate countries. And we never really figured that out, but he phoned Central and the guy said, Well, this seems to be the guy, but he has a lot of Canadian ID. And eventually what happened, they decided to send me, they gave me a rejection slip, that were rejected from entering the US, and sent me back across the border to Canada. I got back to the Canadian officials and they were annoyed, deeply annoyed, and threatened me with all sorts of things. In the end, they just let me go.
3: four of the Heinzleman stand-ins were rejected at the border, and one member of the group backed away when things began to get tense. They managed to avoid any major repercussions, but the impact that their action had on Canadian policy was significant.
2: It helped generate publicity, built on the publicity, of the protests against this practice, which the churches had been involved, the anti-war movement had been involved, but this was proof positive that it was going on, and it was in direct contradiction with Canadian government policy. The Canadian government about two months, three months later, stopped the policy. And I guess this time the telegram got through to the people at the border because it did stop.
3: That small group of activists proved their theory. They exposed Canadian hypocrisy and they helped to force a policy change. That's a huge accomplishment for any student activist. Bob went on to have a long career in journalism, and his fellow Heinzelmans went on with their careers too. And Americans continued to cross the border into Canada. Many of them were students, like Bob, hoping to continue their studies instead of being drafted. But, much like the policy at the border, expectations and reality were often two very different things. As Canadians discovered a new brand of nationalism, they were becoming increasingly anti-American. And they weren't always friendly to the incoming war resistors. The story of the Heinzelman incident left me with a lot of questions. What was it like for all those young Americans trying to get into Canada? Did the draft impact Canadian universities beyond student activism? What was the impact that draft resistors had on Canadian academia? And how long did that impact last? When you look into research on Vietnam war resistors in Canada, you will inevitably come across an expansive collection of work curated by Joseph Jones. Joseph was a cataloger and reference librarian at the University of British Columbia until 2003. He's since moved his research guides to his own website, which he has continued to update. He has a very personal reason to be so invested in this particular subject. He was a Vietnam war resistor himself.
4: Starting in high school, I was geared to a career as a college professor. I wasn't sure what the subject would be. I started college in the fall of 1966. Selective service system was extremely volatile in those years, the draft. And in 1967, they eliminated most graduate school deferments. I didn't know that. (laughs) I was on track for what I was going to do. You're also in the situation where basically from the age of 17 to the age of 30, I was living the Vietnam War. And I hope that's something people can identify with, thinking in their own life histories. Imagine that portion of your life weighed down and constrained and configured by that uh, looming menace. Yeah,
3: that's your entire young adulthood.
4: Precisely. And pretty well right in the middle of that, I came to Canada. And part of it was my naivete, and part of it was my uh, failure to find any solution as I saw door after door close. My perception at the time was that the two and I'll emphasize this word the two uh honorable possibilities were to go to jail or to go to Canada, and I chose not to go to jail. And uh, in retrospect, I see that very much as disrespect for the state and its notion of what it can require of a person.
3: So sort of kind of trying to draw a line there between what you're saying about this mythology and kind of trying to draw that into thinking about what the environment was like in academia at that time in Canada were there mythologies or beliefs being kind of perpetuated within the institution when it came to Americans coming to study in Canada
4: I wouldn't say so no mm-hmm. I was you know in preparation for this it was it was actually going to be possibly the very first thing I said <laughs> was you know as a student in Canada I have very little experience of or recollection of at either the University of Toronto or at the University of British Columbia of draft dodgers as students. There weren't many of us. We weren't discriminated against as such. We weren't perceptible. Hmm. I mean, one of the agendas... For someone who has come to Canada and believes that they will never, ever be able to go home again without going to prison, is to assimilate and to assimilate fast and to learn everything you can to pass. And you do pass. Mm -hmm. It's fairly easy. Most, uh, you may have to change your accent a little bit if you're able to do that. But apart from that, Nobody blinks an eye. Nobody thinks about it. It's not on their horizon.
3: That's really interesting because there's research and writing about like the the concerns that there were at the time of um, American ideas kind of bleeding into Canadian institutions. But you're saying there really wasn't actually enough folks. And then for another, there was this wanting to fly under the radar that kind of was preventing that from happening in any case.
4: This gets into a generation question and a demographic question. And the generation question is a lot of American academics did uh, get good Canadian academic uh, positions, say between 1960 and 1965. None of those would have been draft dodgers. None Mm -hmm. of them. This is a previous generation. There was a Canadian reaction to this cohort from the United States who had come into academic positions, and understandably so. But to be fair, it's not like Canadians could have been hired because they weren't there. They didn't have the credentials. Uh, Everybody was expanding uh, higher education. These are people who had a wonderful career all the way through. They were competed for in hiring. They had multiple job interviews. That has not happened since.
3: So to take it back a little bit to when you were in undergrad, when you were studying, did you have any knowledge of or contact with any of the student activists at that time who were working with anti-draft, like draft support kind of organizations. I know in in Ontario, there were quite a few. There was the Toronto Anti-Draft Program. Did you have any sort of contact with any of those folks?
4: Yes, I did. But as a student in a small Southern liberal arts college, sure, we had uh, as much anti-war activism as was possible. That. Part of my history was interrupted because I chose to spend my third year in uh, a junior year abroad program. I was in France into Germany, so there wasn't continuity even there, but uh, there was a, a VW van load of us who went to the very large, uh, it was a precedent-setting incursion into Washington, D.C. Uh, it was the middle of November in uh, 1969. It was massive, mm-hmm. and uh, I was there. I saw tear gas grenades flying through the air outside the Department of Justice, and uh, quite a quite a moment.
3: Absolutely, yeah. There were a few really like watershed activism moments happening at that time. You know, there's there was the one that you just mentioned, and then the Heinzelman incident that happened out of Glendon College at York University in 1969. That was also a huge moment for activism. And I'm surprised that some of this, when I was doing my research, I was surprised that these kinds of pieces of history are not more widely known. A lot of things seem to just exist in this little bubble before America ended the draft, and then it kind of peters off in terms of knowledge and general consciousness really quickly. And so it makes me want to kind of ask you as a historian and as someone who has such an extensive archive and collection of everything to do on this topic, I want to kind of ask about why you think there might not have been more of a lasting impact on on the institution, on academia, but also on student activism like you know why do you think it this this petered out kind of so so quickly as soon as the draft ended
4: well it was not even so much the draft ending as the commencement of the draft lottery i believe there were five lotteries and the first of these lotteries happened on, i believe it was on december the 1st 1969 i was part of that lottery it applied to People born in four or five years. I got a bad number in that lottery, and that is where my fate got sealed. If you were in the lower one-third, you were pretty well guaranteed to be drafted. The ultimate sort of like cutoff number out of the 365 possible days in a normal year was 195. Anybody who was alive for that event will very clearly recall the number that was assigned to their birthday. Mm -hmm. My life would have been very different if I had been over 195 and not under. Then, of course, once you've dealt with four years' worth of people, and subsequent lotteries are just dealing with one year's worth of people. All this large group of people have certainty, Mm -hmm. and that did a great deal to take all of the steam out of the anti-war movement, in concert with the winding down of people actually being sent into battle.
3: So I have kind of one other little area that I'd love to hear your thoughts on, which was about this idea of there being a concern of Canadian institutions becoming too cosmopolitan during this time and also about the fact that there was an upswing in Canadian nationalism that was happening in this area in this in this time period and how it might have affected Americans who were arriving or it might have contributed to a sort of broader anti-Americanism. Can you talk a little bit about that?
4: I don't think I would uh, say that Canada was anti-cosmopolitan. But What uh, Pierre Trudeau uh, famously called uh, being in bed with an elephant, Uh, how can you not? I feel it every day. There's that behemoth uh, south of the border that uh, wags the tail of the dog. I have utter sympathies with a mentality that feels threatened by that. I feel threatened by that. I always did. (laughs) 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 And uh, this particular group of uh, refugees may have contributed a lot to that sensibility.
3: Joseph Jones is a cataloger and reference librarian emeritus at the University of British Columbia. He's a historian, archivist, and bibliographer with a vast collection of resources on Vietnam war resistors in Canada. Don Maxwell is a professor of history at Indiana State University. He specializes in 20th century U.S. emigration and counterculture history, and he has a book coming out this spring titled, Unguarded Border, American Emigres in Canada During the Vietnam War. It's based on his dissertation. It documents a sort of surprising thing. Even though many Canadians were anti-war, the country didn't always welcome draft dodgers with open arms. Canadians could be anti-American. And they were afraid Canada was becoming too cosmopolitan. I wanted to speak to Don to get a sense of why that was and to ask him how American war resistors shaped the Canadian national identity.
0: I've always been interested in Canada since I was a kid. My mom had some aunts and uncles who lived in Detroit and when we visited them we would often go over to Windsor and I remember being in Windsor and thinking well this doesn't seem a whole lot different than The other side. But yet, even as a little kid, I could tell that there were some differences. So it just in my mind as a kid, thinking, well, what are the differences between the two countries? I had some friends who lived in Lake Placid, New York, who would often go to Montreal. So I got to see little bits and pieces of Canada. My curiosity as a kid turned into kind of an intellectual question. And then when I started on a master's and then PhD in history, I was interested in immigration, and one of the things that interested me about immigration were all the groups of people who had left the United States, because I think if people leave the United States, it's a sign that they're rejecting something about the country. So I began to look into those groups, and along the way, I stumbled upon the number that tens of thousands of Americans had left the United States during the Vietnam War to go to Canada. I quickly thought of myself, as a a little boy in the backseat of the car going into Michigan with my parents and that they were pointing out hitchhikers. So I asked them, I said, what were you saying about these hitchhikers? We saw as we were going up to Detroit and they said, well, we thought maybe they were dodging the draft. I said, yes, that's, that's what I thought. These guys have been living in my head all this time. And I finally figured out who they were. So once I realized that this was going way, way back in my imagination, I just decided that would be the, the dissertation project.
3: I kind of have an off-the-cuff question before we get into your thesis questions, which is based on a quote, actually, that I read recently in a book by Robert McGill called War is Here that's about the Vietnam War in Canadian literature. And this book kind of posits the development of a Canadian national identity in relationship to... Anti Americanism, Canadian nationalism. It sort of, you know, how Canada's identity is predicated on its relationship with America. And there's a quote in the introduction. I'll just read the full quote. A country doesn't need to be involved in combat for a war to have a role in shaping the national identity. Canadian writing about Vietnam illustrated how a nation might construct an identity for itself equally through its non participation, its complicity, and its critique. Um, I think that's a really interesting framework. I guess this is a really big question to start with, and then we'll and then we'll boil it down a little more. But I kind of want to hear your thoughts on that intersection between the war, the Vietnam War, and the growth and development of a Canadian national identity. Like, did you come up against that a lot when you were doing this work?
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot going on in Canada in this era. I think Canadian nationalism, at least from my point of view, seems to be pretty high. The centennial happens in 67. And I think there was a lot of stuff being done in Canada to commemorate the centennial. As I was thinking about being a little boy in the car in Windsor, Ontario, for the first time in, I think, 1970, I remember seeing old Canadian flags prior to the 65 changeover. I remember being kind of puzzled by that. But it made me think about the the maple leaf flag and how that was such an assertion, I think, of a Canadian identity, That was maybe still being worked out into the early 70s, not having a flag that was based on the British flag, but was something very, very unique into itself. So that's a recollection I have. But I think also as Canada's trying to assert its identity during this time, its pesky next door neighbor (laughs) is, you know, really testing Canada during this time. And I'm glad that, um, was it McGill?
3: Yes, Robert McGill. Yeah.
0: Recognize that you know the United States has to be reckoned with during this time. So, you know, the fact that the United States is involved in this war that's very unpopular in lots of parts of the world and Canadian, I think, displeasure with that war, you could point to maybe 1965 as the beginning of a lot of uh, displeasure with that, the, You know, the same year as the maple leaf flag comes out. So I, I think as Canada's feeling good about itself, one of the things it can feel good about itself about is the fact that it's not the United States, but it can respond to the war, respond to the United States' involvement in the war.
3: I want to get into a little bit more about the flow of ideas that was happening between America and Canada in the 60s and 70s, in particular the ones that were stemming from and around Vietnam War resistors. Can you tell me a little bit about what the scene is like in this era?
0: Hmm, scene. That's a uh, <laughs>
3: the atmosphere. A broad term. <laughs> I know. <laughs>
0: so the situation in the United States was that there was a military draft in place, and there were a lot of ways to defer military service or to resist military service but sometimes guys exhausted those ways of deferring service if you were a father that might get you out of military service for a while people in certain professions could get out of military service as well there were a lot of questions about a person's medical or physical ability to serve so there's a lot of possible ways for guys to get out of military service an able-bodied clear-headed young man who could not check off any of the boxes I just mentioned, could get out of military service for four years as an undergraduate student, but they had to be continuously enrolled. It was also possible for a while for a guy to be deferred from military service if he were a graduate student, Hmm. but it, it became pretty clear to some people that If you could get into graduate school, you could be in graduate school for a very long time. Uh, You could just roll over from the MA to a PhD. (laughs) The military got wind of that and realized that guys were, quote unquote, hiding from military service by being involved in a graduate program. So the selective service system responsible for the draft in the United States put some limits on what could be done. So I think those guys who really sincerely wanted to avoid war and or seriously wanted to pursue degrees in something besides a non-medical field at the graduate level got a little desperate. So Canada was a place that they could go.
3: You mentioned in your thesis that when we're talking about questions about a Canadian identity that the universities were one of the big points of scrutiny for how that identity was growing and being developed, you know, obviously mm-hmm. because, you know, you think the people who are at the universities are going to become thought leaders. and so it's kind of important to consider. So when, these draft resistors and deserters, when they began to arrive in universities, was there kind of a conflict or a dilemma presented for these nationalists? Because I can imagine on the one hand, people coming from America into Canada at that time are not in favor of what's happening in America, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, it's still Americans in Canadian schools. So was that kind of like a point of tension?
0: Yeah, yeah, it was, because at the same time, everything else is happening in this era, the baby boom generation is arriving at universities. If you consider 1946 to be the beginning of the baby boom generation, add 18 to that, and they're going to start arriving at universities in 1964. And the United States begins to get heavily involved militarily in Vietnam in 1964. So it's all happening simultaneously. One thing that I I noticed in this era that someone else pointed out was that the Canadian university system began to expand greatly during this time period because they needed to find seats for students in Canadian universities. And I think I can pinpoint some numbers. Oh, great. The number I found in 1960 was that there were 114,000 undergraduate or graduate students in Canada. So 114,000 in 1960. By 1970, there were 309,000. Wow! So the university population triples in that decade. Roughly 20 universities were established in Canada between 1959 and 1970. So the, the point that I try to make in my book is that Canada was really needing to find people to step and teach at its universities, but it was not creating... PhDs who could teach in universities at a fast enough rate. So an easy place to go looking for people was just south of the border where there were PhDs being awarded in the tens of thousands every year.
3: And so at the same time, what's the experience like for a draft resistor or a military deserter who's trying to enter the higher education system in Canada? Were they singled out or were they looked down on? Are there cases of them having a difficult time kind of trying to make their way into the system. I spoke with um, another person for this episode who made several attempts to have an academic career and eventually gave up for a number of reasons, but partially because it just never materialized into feeling like the right path for him. Mm -hmm. And so I'm curious if that's kind of a common experience.
0: I have a lot of anecdotal evidence of this, not so much statistical evidence, but anecdotal evidence. There were a lot of guys who said that they were able to get into Canadian universities pretty easily and and some of their stories are like wow remarkably easy they just showed up <laughs> they said I'd like to transfer here if possible and they were admitted pretty easily in other cases people might have been admitted but felt like they were discriminated against because they were from the United States I think it might depend on where and when I think Earlier in the time period, maybe pre-1970, it might've been easier for guys to go up to Canada. Post-1970, maybe not as easy. And then the other conclusion I came to based on this anecdotal evidence was that it seemed like it was easier to get into some of those newer universities that were established in the 60s, who might've been looking for students anyway, versus the more established older universities that might have had a more solid atmosphere that they were trying to maintain. And that atmosphere wouldn't have been included a bunch of American guys showing up.
3: That leads me actually to another question very perfectly, which is about, yeah, the idea of the identities of these institutions. You know, a newer Canadian university at that time might have been looking for different things than an older one. And I also came up against this idea of cosmopolitanism mm-hmm. in universities. Can you tell me a little bit more about how that came into play in the situation?
0: As I was thinking about w- what to say about this to you, it was kind of interesting to think about what cosmopolitanism meant in this kind of situation. And I think there's a real debate going on in Canada, in a lot of institutions, and this is uh, stemmed primarily from a lot of debate that happened at Carleton University in Ottawa. I think the question was, should Canadian universities promote Canadian culture and would admitting people from the United States, and I think a lot of other places in the world, but admitting people from other places in the world as students or faculty members dilute the Canadian university's interest in promoting Canadian culture. So the debate, I think, within the Canadian Academy was, well, do we want to be provincial and only teach Canadian stuff? Or do we wanna be more cosmopolitan and bring in other points of view? So it kinda of depends on who you were talking to and where and, and when, whether that was the case. There was a lot of concern about Americans coming up. Uh, they were certainly more numerous. And I can give you some more numbers about that. But they certainly were more numerous numbers-wise during this time. But percentage-wise, they really kinda of remained flat because At the same time, a lot of Americans are showing up in Canadian universities, so are a lot of Canadians as well, because Mm -hmm. of the baby boom.
3: That actually makes me think about something that you have noted in your thesis in that same chapter that I'm wondering if you can kind of expand on a little bit just for context, um, which is when we talk about anti-Americanism. You had mentioned this idea of an old anti-Americanism versus a new anti-Americanism, one sort of from the 1940s and one more from the 1970s. Can you kind of speak to that a little bit?
0: So we're kind of back to the old flag and uh, the strong British influences. And I remember that as a kid, being surprised at how many shops in Windsor were selling English China and stuff like that. So I think there was the idea that if Canada was connected to England, England was a very respectable, old-school European culture, and U.S. culture was something newer, and they actually had broken away violently from uh, the British Empire many years before. So that was something to be sort of resisted American culture in, in that way. So English culture is better than American culture, but then after World War II, Canada moves more into the U.S. orbit uh, militarily and and I think culturally because Britain was depleted after World War II. The United States emerged pretty strongly after World War II. And as the the two countries began to think about mutual defense with the Dew Line and, and NORAD and those sorts of things, Canada kind of falls a little more under that kind of influence. So like it or not, the two countries had, had kind of agreed to protect each other, but as a part of that protection, to what extent should Canadians you know, buy into other aspects of culture? I mean, not only are we trying to maybe stop rockets flying over the North Pole toward Canada or uh, U.S. targets, but... Radio signals are more easily able to cross national boundaries of television signals, all sorts of tourism opportunities for Americans to come up to Canada. So there's kind of a famous event that happens when Lester Pearson came to the United States to accept a a Peace Award at Temple University in Philadelphia. And in the speech he gave, he suggested that perhaps the United States might try to negotiate with Vietnamese officials to try to bring a peace to Vietnam. What is kind of legendary about that story is that Johnson was very, very upset that the leader of a NATO nation would criticize what the United States was doing in Vietnam so openly and would even do it on U.S. soil when he did it. Apparently, Johnson yelled at Pearson, you don't piss on your neighbor's rug. And I think Pearson tried to explain to Johnson that he was representing a Canadian point of view, and that is that we should try to get peace in Vietnam, that we shouldn't just be so stubborn militarily about what the United States was trying to do there. So I think kind of apologized for having made the remark, but didn't really apologize for it. He was, I think, speaking what a lot of Canadians were thinking. So I think that that marks a kind of a a shift in the Canadian public's attitude toward United States involvement in Vietnam. That goes back to, you know, as far back as
3: 65. I'm wondering a little bit about the ways in which Canada might have been more complicit than the public consciousness believed at that time or understood.
0: Okay, yeah. So I think it the Johnson-Pearson encounter, as I said, kind of turned a lot of Canadians off toward the United States involvement in Vietnam. So I think the idea of accepting young American men to Canada as war resistors seemed like a really good sort of thing that the United States could do. to to welcome tens of thousands of potential soldiers to sort of pull them out of potential Vietnam service seemed like a satisfying thing for Canadians to do. It was a a nice way for uh, Canada in a a way to thumb its nose at the United States. But the thing that also happens during this time is that Canada continues to sell things to the United States that the United States needs for its war effort. One of the things I, I discovered late in the research for the book that I think it was one of the readers of the book said you might say more about Canadian complicity with the Vietnam war because it seems like they're against it, but in a lot of ways they are, but they're still selling things. So historian named Luke Stewart, pointed to the inextricable political, security, and economic relationship of the United States and Canada, observing that while Canada could be a middle or second-rate power on the world stage, it was partner number one when it came to supplying the U.S. empire with necessary war materials. A particular note in that trade, this is back to me, uh, was the U.S. purchase of useful military materials such as uranium, iron ore, nickel, asbestos, and platinum from Canada.
3: That's really interesting.
0: There were a lot of direct investment of the United States in Canadian corporations that were kicking some of this stuff back to the United States. There were defense production sharing agreements between the two countries. The United States was purchasing apparently napalm and Agent Orange and military hardware, and Canadian sales of material to the United States doubled between 1964 and 1966. So once the war kicks up, Canada is selling twice as much stuff as it was two years before to the United States. So, you know, (laughs) the the obvious thing is if Canada really wanted to stop what the United States was doing, it would have stopped selling the stuff to the United States. So it seemed that as long as the Canadian government kept quiet about the war and with commodities and investments crossing the border freely, the U.S. government could put up with draft resistors and military deserters going to Canada.
3: That's very interesting. That is so much more complex than what you would... Kind of imagine on the surface, and then we also have incidents like like the the Heinzleman incident in 1969 that came out of Glendon College in Ontario that kind of demonstrated that it wasn't even as easy as one would think to get across the border that there were that the Canadian government was um, acting differently than expected even when it came to deserters and resistors. So it's far more nuanced than just a question of being for or against the American military activity at that time. What I take from, you know, reading your work and talking to you is that there's an incredible confluence of things that are happening in this tiny little period of history. Like there's so so much happening in the institution, in culture, in politics. All of it is kind of distilled into this one moment. What happened to this ideas flow and this all of these conversations, what happened with Americans moving across the border once the draft ends? Did we see a continuation? Was there a huge drop-off in all of this? What was the aftermath?
0: There's a huge drop-off in all of this. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah it, it, it's such an interesting time. The more I began to look at it and even talking to you today, I realized how many things are happening simultaneously in both countries, and they just sort of line up for this this interesting decade of time. But I think The big thing that happens is that the United States withdraws from Vietnam, ends the military draft that just pulls the plug on all of this. Suddenly, it's a lot easier for guys to stay in the United States. And the United States, under the Ford and Carter presidencies, offers various kinds of programs to forgive or to allow for alternative service of guys who did not served during Vietnam. So it's it's as though the country wants to forgive or at least forget these people to sort of bring them back into the fold in the United States. And a person who studied this a long time ago said about half of the guys who went to Canada came back, but half stayed. So that's kind of interesting. So once the military draft ended, Canada didn't seem as attractive as it did at one point. And in some ways, As a scholar, I'm impatient with that. I I would have liked to have thought that this would have opened up a situation where Americans would have continued to go to Canada at maybe the same rate, like, oh, well, we don't have the military draft anymore, but this is a good place to go for lots of reasons. So that hasn't happened. If you just look at the uh, number of people who immigrate to Canada each year, it peaks in the late 60s and then it goes down and then once the war is over with it goes to even lower than pre-war levels it's kind of surprising
3: it's really interesting and i think it says something about you know i we set out on this episode kind of with a question of what was the impact on canadian institutions that draft dodgers and war resistors had and it almost feels like it's less the direct impact that those individuals had and more The related conversation about Canadian academic and national identity, that was like what the impact really was, was more of this whole concept of what a Canadian institution is and what Canada's national identity is, which is a a much bigger question than the one that we started with.
0: (laughs) Yeah, and and I think even from my limited point of view here, it, it seems like Canada's thinking, well, we don't want to be British anymore. I don't think we want to be American either, but it was this this moment, this decade we're looking at was this weird distraction, I think, for Canada. Like, oh, well, we're drawn into the U.S. military orbit. Are we going to be drawn into the cultural orbit as well? And then once again, once the war is over with, it seems like that pull decreases.
3: That was Don Maxwell, a professor in the History Department at Indiana State University. His book on guarded border, American émigrés in Canada during the Vietnam War, is coming out in May. And that's it for this week's episode of Darts and Letters. We're a production of Cited Media, and we're produced by Jay Coburn, Mark Apollonio, and Ren Bangert. As always, our theme song and outro is composed by Mike Barber graphic design by Dakota Koop. Our host and editor is Gordon Caddick, and I am your guest host for today, Ren Bangert. This episode received support from the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. It's part of our mini series of episodes we've been working on about the relationship between activism and academia the scholarly leads are professors Leslie Wood at York University and Professor Sigrid Schmaltzer at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Thanks to them for their support and to others who have helped with research and advising, including Charmaine Khan and Susanna Mulvale. We're also backed by our generous patrons. Join us, join them. Go to patreon.com slash Letters. Thanks for listening. Check back in in two weeks.